Hello, and welcome to Unabridged, the weekly podcast where teachers take on books. This is Sarah. Join us for bookish episodes and a monthly book club pick. This is Ashley. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Unabridged Pod, or go to our website, unabridgedpod.com, where the books we read are linked for purchase. This is Jen. Check out our Teachers Pay Teachers store, our Patreon page, and our newsletter. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts to support us. You want opinions about books? We've got them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 184. We are here today. We are going to do a book-to-screen adaptation of the TV series pilot for The 100, which is an adaptation of a YA book. Before we get started, we also want to remind you that our newsletter is up and running. We have two coming out per month, one at the very beginning of the month that just runs over all the things that are happening in Unabridged for that month. And then in mid-month, we send out one that gives you a little taste of our personalities and things that we are loving. So we would love for you to subscribe to the newsletter. You can do that on our website. It's very it's very apparent how to do that when you get there. And you just sign up and it'll come right to your inbox. So let's get started today with our bookish check-in. Ashley, what are you reading today? So one of the books I'm reading this week is Evie Dunmore's Bringing Down the Duke. This is a bookstagram made me do it book, <laughs> and I saw it all over the place, and it sounded really intriguing, and then I grabbed it on a Kindle deal, and so it's just been patiently waiting in my Kindle closet, and mm-hmm. I was looking for something lighter to read the other night before I went to bed. And so I was happy to start this one. I didn't know much about it. I mean, the fact that it had a Duke suggested that it was (laughs) taking place in the past, but I really didn't know much about it. And it is set in the late 1800s. And Annabelle is the main female character. And she is very intelligent and well-educated, but she does not but destitute and so she's trying to find a way to have some financial security at the time when the book starts she's really dependent on her cousin as her kind of male security and so she's looking for a way to navigate that so that she can stand on her own better and as the book is opening, she becomes aware that Oxford is taking women for the first time and so she is strategizing in the very beginning about how to best lay things out so that she can convince her cousin, kind of trick her cousin, into agreeing to let her go and study at Oxford. But when she goes, and she does she does work that out. So then when she gets there, she has to take part in one of the causes that's part of the arrangement for her scholarship. And the cause that she gets involved with is the women's suffrage movement. And a big focus that they have is on property and the fact that when women are married, they lose their property to the man. And so they're advocating really hard and lobbying to make it where women don't always lose their property upon marriage and that they can maintain their property when they go into a marriage agreement. And so that is the premise on her side. And then we quickly see Sebastian, who is a very prominent duke in in England and who has a lot of connection to the queen. And he is curmudgeonly and seems a lot older, but he's actually in his 30s and just has had to manage the family's finances for a long time. And his family has come from a long line of money and property, 
but his they made a series of bad decisions over a lot of generations and his father essentially squandered his property. Part of it was in a betting game and he just lost the property on cards. And so just recklessness as far as management. And so I think that's part of why Sebastian's character is the way that he is early on is just that he has a lot of responsibility and he's working hard to re-establish that connection of security that his family had in the past. And for the women's side, it becomes apparent quickly that they are going to need men to support their cause and they need men with influence and property. So you can imagine how Sebastian becomes a desirable target because of that. And so early on, the women are plotting and planning how to navigate that. And Annabelle doesn't really know anything about life there. She is coming from the outside. And so early on when she is assigned some tasks as far as lobbying, she goes right up to Sebastian, the Duke, and approaches him and tries to lobby to him. And all the other women are amazed that she's so courageous and brazen, but she had no idea who he was. And so she's just like, well, I could tell he was wealthy and influential. And so I went up to him. So it was kind of a series of things where they saw her to suddenly be really amazing. And she's like, uh, (laughs) I didn't necessarily know what I was doing, but then they're trying to find their way in. And Sebastian has a younger brother who is not nearly as responsible and tight laced as he is. And so they're thinking that that may be their pathway. And that's kind of where I am in the book now is they're trying to navigate their way in with the younger brother and figure out how to make things work. And I am absolutely fascinated by it so far. I'm really loving it. I am blown away by how little rights the women have, and it is humbling to read the way that, for example, Annabelle can't be around town without a chaperone, and so she has to go everywhere the chaperone, so then she has to pay for that, but she doesn't have any money, so she's constantly frantic to earn enough money to pay for things like a chaperone so that she can keep going. She has to pay for her cousin's hired help because she's not there to take care of his children for free. And so it's all this stuff that just shows how difficult it is in society for women to find their way. And it is, like I said, it's pretty shocking to me to think that it was really just not that long ago that things were like that and to think about what it would be like to be living during that time. So again, that is Evie Dunmore's Bringing Down the Duke. And it's a lot of fun and also really fascinating. I've seen that all over Instagram. Uh, I think it looks really good. I like the it's cover. Amazing. <laughs> it's so funny. I was talking about that today with my supervisor because we were talking about books that have been misshelved in our library that is shelved as a YA book. And it oh, is absolutely wow. not a young adult book. It no. is an amazing book, but it is not a young adult book. And so, yeah, anyway. But yeah, I loved it. I really want to read the next book in the series. I'm excited to keep going with it too. And I think I was surprised to see how much how much of a historical book it is. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that I saw it, I had the idea that it was all romance. And I think you are getting a lot into the politics of the time, the environment of the time, what it was like for women who are starting as the first scholars at Oxford and things like that, that I didn't expect. And so that part has been really rich as well. How about you, Jen? What are you reading? So I'm reading an e-galley It's Allison Hammer's Little Pieces of Me. And this one will have been out by the time this episode releases. But I'm about halfway through this one. And it is so compelling. I had to stop for a chat. And I really wanted to keep going. But this is about Paige Meyer, who 
signs up for a DNA testing website and gets an unexpected email that says her father is on the website and wants to connect and her father is dead. And so she understandably is a little shocked. And as she's investigating further, she finds out that the DNA testing website has said that the man that she thought was her father was not, and that her mother had never told her that this other man is her biological father and that her, the father who raised her also likely did not know. And so she's upset, <laughs> understandably, and is just trying to figure out her mother is just very closed mouthed and does not want to talk about it at all. And she is just desperate to find out what actually happened, what the true story is. She has sisters who she now realizes are her half sisters. Her life is just in turmoil. So that's one half of the book. And then in the other half, it flashes back to 1975 when her mom, Betsy, is in college. And we know very early on that Paige's biological father is Andy Abrams. And he is this very handsome, very popular man on the campus and that that's her biological father and that he knew both of her parents who were dating at the time. And so I still don't know exactly what happened, but they are yeah, just kind of swirling around each other at these different parties. And you see as it moves back and forth, Paige just trying to wrestle with what this means for her identity and what this means for who she thinks she is and the things she's always questioned about herself. She's always been very different from her siblings and from her mom. And now she feels like she kind of understands that. So she's trying to reach out to Andy Abrams to get some answers, but he's not responding yet. So yeah, we'll see what happens. It's great. I will say it reminds me a lot of Danny Shapiro's book, Inheritance, which is a nonfiction book about the same thing happening. And it's interesting in that case, Danny Shapiro found out that she was not Jewish and that was a big part of her identity. She was from a very conservative Jewish family. And in this book, that's a part of it as well. So it is interesting that this fiction novel is replicating that part of it, that their religion and their understanding of their identity is a part of it. But yeah, it's, it's great so far. So again, that's Alison Hammer's Little Pieces of Me. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, I think that that premise is so interesting. And I can see how that's really hard for her. But then it's also like trying to connect, you know, if she's lost her father, and then she finds out that there's this other father who is right. alive, then that's really complicated. Yeah, she's so conflicted, because of course, she can't talk to her dad. And she was very close to her dad. She was much closer to her dad than to her mom. And he is the only person she wants to talk to about it. And yeah. So it's, it's really heartbreaking, but it's beautifully written. I really, I really love it. So how about you, Sarah? What are you reading? I'm continuing with my 2021 streak of reading nonfiction by women. And so <laughs> I'm reading right now, Samantha Irby's We Are Never Meeting in Real Life. It's an essay collection. I have really enjoyed Lindy West's essay, essay collections and Samantha Irby actually writes on Hulu, Shrill, which is based on one of Lindy West's books, one of her memoirs. And so I was just really interested. I've had this book for a long time. And I that's just kind of where where my heart's leading me this year. And I started and it's great. It's very it's funny. It is matter of fact. But I will tell you, if you are sensitive to 
language, like in profanity, she uses a lot of curse words, which that doesn't bother me that much. So it's fine. But if you are sensitive to that, I would maybe not read this book. But otherwise, it's really funny. She she writes essays about her life. You learn about her life when she was growing up and then how she kind of handles different situations as an adult. And it's hilarious. And what's one thing that is really interesting is she I didn't realize, but she runs a desk. She runs kind of like the front desk at an animal hospital. So if you look on the front of the book, the cover of We Are Never Meeting in Real Life, there's this picture of this angry cat. And if you, there's an essay and you will get to know why that was a choice. And it's really <laughs> funny. It's really funny. So, so I really highly recommend it. It's great. It moves fast. And again, like the, it, it's an essay collection, but it still kind of has that narrative nonfiction feel. So I'm really enjoying it. So that is Samantha Irby's We Are Never Meeting in Real Life. That one's on my list. I've heard such good things about it. Oh, it's so good. Her first essay is an, <laughs> is an application for The Bachelor. And she talks about that being like a guilty pleasure. So, you know, that hooked me at the very beginning. <laughs> and, but she answers all the questions very honestly. And that's really funny too. So I just really like it. That sounds awesome. <laughs> so for this episode, we are so excited to share with you the conversation Jen and I are going to have about the 100. It is a book to movie adaptation. We missed Ashley on this one, but we, but we did enjoy our conversation and we hope that you enjoy it too. And let us know what you think. If you've read The 100 or watched the series on Netflix, we would love to hear your thoughts. Today we are taking on the pilot for the CW show, The 100. So Sarah and I, this is Jen, Sarah and I are here to let you know all the thoughts about the 100. <laughs> How are you today, Sarah? I'm awesome. How are you? I'm great. I have to say, I really enjoyed rewatching the pilot. It had been a while. Yes, for me too, because I, I think I'm through season five. I hurt my back a couple years ago, and when I hurt my back, I, I literally could not move. So I binged it. In, I mean, I binged the first four seasons like so quickly. And then the fifth season came out and I was back to moving. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I haven't, I've watched it like in little increments, but I haven't watched a, a ton of it. So I think I'm probably going to go back and just re and watch all of season five and six and then be ready for season seven. Awesome. Yeah. But it was really I, cool to watch the pilot again. I really I was enjoyed it. I thought that was really neat too. Yeah. I didn't binge it quite as much. I caught it a couple seasons in and then it became my treadmill show. So <laughs> I binged it as in I was watching an episode a day, but I only do the treadmill once a day. So <laughs> that was as far as I would ever get. <laughs> well, I can say if I were some of the scenes, especially later in the series, if I were watching on the treadmill, I might have hurt myself because I was bawling <laughs> at different times. <laughs> yeah, I always think I should pick less compelling shows to be my treadmill shows because when things are shocking or sad, I'm always pausing. And, and so I'll be like, two minutes, stop. 
two minutes stop. <laughs> I'm sure it's not great for my heart rate, but anyway, that, that's just the way my wor world works and it gets me off my butt. It's the only way I would ever do the treadmill. So, all right, well, we are going to use most of our typical show episode structure and we are going to add one special category a little bit later, but we always start with just overall impressions. So Sarah, going back, rewatching the pilot, what was your overall impression of the 100 pilot? Well, the, the first time I watched it, I, I mean, I was totally riveted because for one thing, I, I'm a fan of dystopian books and the premise of the show is that 90, you know, 97 years ago, there has been a nuclear apocalypse and all of these people are, are living on this, basically a space station called the Ark. I was riveted the first time. So it was really super interesting to go back and watch the pilot again and knowing kind of the character arcs of a lot of the characters and how things go. It was really interesting to see kind of their origin because mm -hmm. I had forgotten, you know, because, you know, when you get into four or five seasons of a show, you are tending to look forward and not backward. Yes. And so I, it gave me a chance to look backward. It also gave me to, a chance, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but a chance to see some of the characters that are no longer there. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, there were a couple I had totally forgotten about. Yes. And so I really enjoyed it. And I still, I was still riveted. It, it still felt fresh. And I still would recommend, I mean, watching the, rewatching the pilot, I would still recommend it to people who like, I mean, it definitely has at times like the soapy YA feel mm -hmm. at just at times, but I mean, it is a really interesting look at, you know, how we respond to trauma, how we mm -hmm. like, how people create community and how people divide when, you know, put to certain situations. And I just think it's really interesting. So I was, again, overall, I, I would still recommend it. I still really liked it. And I kind of want to watch it all again from the beginning, because again, seeing those, some of those characters that I really grew to love that are no longer in the series made me want to stay with them a little longer. How about yeah. you, Jen? What yeah, you I had the same reaction. I just, I kind of want to rewatch it again too in advance of the final season. And I want to make my husband watch it with me because he has never watched any of the episodes, even though I've told him how good it is. I did think when I had that thought, I did wonder, I think the teen soapy stuff that does decrease, I think as the series mm -hmm. goes on, might be a turnoff for him in the first episode. Yeah. But yeah. I think it just so quickly turns and that is always a part of it because that's part of life is relationships that we have with people. But I think it becomes proportionally smaller as yes. you go. Yeah, I definitely, you know, having been farther in the series, I don't feel that soapy vibe mm -mm. that I, that I, but then, then when I watched the pilot, I'm like, oh, they're setting up some things, but I feel like they, like they tried to set up some of that stuff and then, then they went in a totally different direction. Yeah. It felt like, because it definitely doesn't feel, for one thing, it's super violent. Uh -huh. I mean, as the series goes and it doesn't feel like they set. I mean, there are love stories, but that is not the main, to me, that's not like the main, right. You know, motivation for the characters. Agreed. I mean, you know, so I, I, yeah, I think it's really interesting to see where it goes. So if you yeah. haven't watched the series and you're just watching with us or watching the pilot and then going to continue, it, it gets, 
even more compelling, mm-hmm. I would say. I agree. Well, and I just think, so one thing I think they do really well from the beginning is set up the fact, okay, so I guess we should have set this up from the beginning. So they are in space. This society exists in space. There was the nuclear apocalypse on the ground. You said all that. They, their laws say, because they're in this arc in space and resources are slim, that if you, any crime is a capital crime. So if you are over 18 and you commit any crime, no matter how small or what we would consider to be small, you are executed. If you're under 18, you're basically imprisoned until you turn 18. And the 100 that they send to the ground are 100 people who are under 18. We find out there are going to be spoilers here. I guess I should have said that. So I'm just going to spoil things now. If you don't want to hear, go watch the pilot and then come back. Pause. (laughs) Okay. So now I'm going to spoil it. So they send these 100 people to the ground. We find out later because they have underestimated the amount of resources that it will take to keep the whole society in space on the ark alive and sending these 100 under 18 prisoners to the earth has a twofold purpose. One is to determine if the earth can now sustain life. The other is that gives them another month on the ark that they have enough resources for. So I just feel like there are all of these ethical questions about choosing society What's the value of individual life when it's put up against society? What laws do you have to put in place when you're in this kind of system? And when is it okay to make exceptions versus not? You have leaders who disagree. I mean, there's just, there's so much packed in. So there's all this action. There's all this romance. There are the hundred kids on the ground. You get this Lord of the Flies kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. And then you also have, this parallel storyline up in the arc of these people trying to create a government that will work to keep the most people alive. But the most people means making choices that will kill others. I mean, it's just, there is a lot in there. And I was struck all over again by how early they kicked off asking those really key questions that persist through the show. Like there's one point where Abby, who is a doctor and she's the mother of one of the kids that they've sent to the ground, has this altercation with one of the leaders, Marcus Kane. And he says, I am doing what I can to keep most of us alive. And she said, I'm doing what I can to make sure that we deserve it. And I just think that question haunts us through the episode or through the seasons as we see people making decisions to survive and then questioning whether they then deserve that survival. Anyway, I, that was a big long rant, but I just was swept up all over again in those questions. Yes. Same. And again, like knowing where it goes and watching it the second time around, it makes you understand. Like when I first watched it, I was like, Oh, these are the bad, this is a bad guy. This person is the bad guy. But then as you, especially like the longer the series goes, is it, it's, there is not, there's less of a question of who is the bad, uh, who is a bad guy? Because it's not like a traditional show where the, there are these villains and the good guys are fighting the villains. It is more about survival and how we navigate that, how the kids on the ground navigate it, Mm -hmm. how the people who eventually I don't want to spoil. So it just, it's just about survival and how we interact. I think a lot of it, the longer you watch the series, you really 
can see parallels to some of the things that are happening in our world now. And watching it now, since we're in this, the midst of this pandemic and these, the choices that the leaders are making, it was hitting really close to home in a way that it didn't hit when I watched it the first time and we were not in this pandemic and kind of, cause I mean, you see a lot of disagreement and leadership now in our own world and about what's the best way to, to go, what economic ramifications yeah. the pandemic is having. Should we open it up? And, you know, I mean, like there is a lot of stuff happening in our world that kind of parallels with mm-hmm. what's happening on the, the pilot in the 100. Right. Who controls the resources and are they controlling it for their own power or for the betterment of the people and who get, yeah. Yes. (laughs) There are a lot of things. (laughs) Maybe we should not get into a close political discussion, but yes, I I agree completely. Yeah. And I just think, so I was looking up reviews before we started and there was Ellen Gray in the Philadelphia Inquirer said, yes, it's a CW series, but one that poses enough lifeboat ethics issues to keep a freshman philosophy class going for months. Yeah. And I think she is absolutely right. Busy for months. Sorry. I think she's absolutely right. And I think because it's on the CW and because there are a lot of really good looking teen stars in the show, I think it gets painted with this brush that is not necessarily accurate because I think, you know, the, the adults are fully as important as the kids that, that mm-hmm. parallel structure, I don't think was emphasized when it was first advertised. When I first saw the trailers, I feel like it was all about the teenagers. And I think all of the questions that they're asking are things that, Young people do have to consider, especially young people who are going to become leaders. So yeah, Yeah. I think they're worth, I feel like I could teach an English class about this, this show. Yes. I think, yes. It's a lot to analyze. All right. Well, I don't want to keep going on and on and on, but uh, (laughs) I mean, I do. Summarize, we liked it. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So what is a favorite scene or are a couple of favorite scenes that you had from the pilot? I would like to do two favorite scenes. I feel like that one on the arc and then one on the ground. That sounds great. Yes. So what my, one of my favorite scenes on the arc is when they, when Kane makes the choice to float Abby because she violated protocol, like blood protocol for, to save the chancellor who, who, I don't think they ever say his name during the first episode, but his name is Jaha. Everybody calls him Jaha, which is his last name and his first name is Thelonious. But he, so the chancellor is, you know, dying basically because he's been shot and Abby makes the choice to use more than the quota of blood to save his life. And that's, that is a, that is a felony or a, that that's against the law on the arc. So Kane, who is second in command, kind of like a vice president or vice chancellor, right? That's, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I think that's what they call him. They don't, I don't know. I don't know his official title, but he makes the choice because Jaha is not conscious, makes the choice to float Abby, which is basically, basically like an execution basically floating her out into space with no suit or, and they, that's, that's the way that they execute people on the arc. And when she goes in, of course, I mean, when I watched it the first time, I was like, oh my gosh, they're really going to kill her this for, and then at the last minute, Jaha comes out in that moment between Kane and 
Jaha and the kind of like the struggle for power. And like, you see, I don't know, Isaiah Washington plays Jaha and he was problematic when he was on Grey's Anatomy. I want to acknowledge that, but he does do an excellent job playing Jaha. He, he's like stoic all the time. And he, his delivery is like, I don't know. I mean, his delivery is like a leader. I mean, like Mm -hmm. you buy that he is in command of that ship. And so I just thought that moment and I, and Kane too. I mean, I think he is a great act. He's a great actor. He is excellent in that role and their acting chemistry, you know, together in that moment. I just thought that was awesome. Mm -hmm. And then my favorite, this won't be as long winded. (laughs) My My favorite on the ground this one is a little bit more cheesy, but when they are walking, when, well, okay. First of all, you know how I love, I love the YA romance stuff. I so too. I love the moment when they are all sleeping in the, the radioactive forest and, and Clark <laughs> wakes up. Sounds Nothing so romantic. Says rom- <laughs> Nothing says romance like a radioactive forest. But, and Clark wakes up and the trees are glowing and it is really beautiful. And she and Finn have this moment. Mm-hmm. I really like that. I like that, that too. Was always, I, I, I just like that moment. So that's mine. Yeah. What about you, Jen? So I really, I'm trying to decide which scene best depicts this, but I think one of the things I really appreciate with the hundred who were on the ground, what ends up being what Bellamy has stowed away. So it starts out 101, but then mm-hmm. two die <laughs> before they even get to earth. Sorry, that's not funny. Two die before they even get to earth. So I guess it's the 99. But anyway, I think you have this great dynamic between Jaha's son Mm-hmm. who wells who has basically deliberately gotten himself arrested so he can go to the ground and you know that there was tension between him and clark because he was in some ways responsible for her dad being floated and for clark being arrested and clark is abby's daughter sorry to get all these connections there but and i think jaha wells believes so much in the rule of law that he is still very attached to the restrictions and the laws that were enacted on board the ark. And a lot of the rest of the teenagers are like, you know, we don't have to worry about any of that anymore. Then you've got this interesting character of Bellamy who committed a crime at this point. We don't know what it is technically. I know what it is. I was going to say, I think <laughs> probably a lot of people know what it is, even if you're just predicting, but anyway, we don't know what Bellamy's crime was. And everyone has this wristband that communicates kind of vital stats to the ARC. And so they're watching it basically to see if these kids are going to make it or not. All of their communications are down except for these wristbands. And Bellamy is very invested in getting the wristbands off. And so you see the way he is manipulating the rest of the 100 or the 99 into doing what he wants by jumping on their desire to be out from under the thumb of the government on the ark. And there's this great scene around a fire where they're burning the wristbands and Bellamy is given this amazing speech. Oh my gosh. He is so good at being really bad. And he, he comes out with this slogan that's really dumb. I thought I'm like, it's not that catchy, but basically it's whatever the hell we want 
And he just inspires everyone into this raucous, like shouting riot where they're all trying to get rid of their wristbands. So I just think there's so many things in play here. There's, you know, the rule of law versus chaos. There's who is with you and who is against you. There is someone who is manipulating people for reasons that they don't understand, but because he's so charismatic and so persuasive, he is able to convince them to do something that, that is serving really only him yeah. because everyone needs the ark to believe that they're alive so that they can help them. Yeah. It's just so complex. And again, I think there are characters you're so turned against now. And like you were saying, Sarah, that you believe are bad or are villains. And then to think about the way they develop through the series is fascinating. So yeah, there's just a ton in there right from the beginning where we're questioning human nature and people's motivations and who is benefiting from each each step forward or back or sideways that people are making and i really love that that the group that bell and me is kind of heading up that i like that even though they you you like wells when you mm -hmm. when you see wells who is jaha's son you like him because yeah. he seems like this voice of reason but then you can also see all of these kids especially bellamy i mean bellamy's story and his sister octavia's story i mean it is a really interesting story about that that you find out as the series progresses but uh, you can see the motivation of mm -hmm. those kids who were imprisoned for doing really not big things and feeling, and a lot of them, their parents have been killed by, by the law and order on the arc, or they know mm -hmm. somebody who has been floated and they're like, you know, hell no, we're not doing this anymore. Right. You know, we don't have to. And I mean, also knowing when they're coming down and Jaha comes on the screen and basically tells them the reason they're being sent down there is because they are expendable. I mean, who, you know, you're, I didn't remember that, I guess, uh -huh. because I was too captivated during the first one and watching everything that was happening. But I was able, when I watched it this time, I was able to really focus in on all the details that I hadn't noticed my first watch. And when he says that, I'm like, why would these kids want to, you know, especially when a lot of them have been imprisoned for, right. for however long. And they know that they're just waiting till they turn 18 to, you know, have even worse fate. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Too. Well, I just, and I don't know if you watch Survivor, but a lot of the decisions like on Survivor, I feel like there's always someone whose first act on Survivor is to build alliances with other people. Mm -hmm. And then there's always someone who is like, no, we got to get a shelter and we got to get food. And, and so to watch these different people and what their motivations are, like Clark is like, we have to get to Mount Weather to get resources so we can survive. Mm -hmm. And she convinces some other people to go with her. Bellamy is all about alliances. Jaha, Wells, I keep, yeah, Wells Jaha, he, it, his concern is establishing law and order and the, and the sense of rules. He needs that. And so I think just there's so much that you see about people's personalities as you see what they emphasize from the very beginning. Yes. Yes. It's great. All right. Well, we don't want to go on forever. We do want to go to our new segment and this is called, I bet you didn't know. And so I did not do a ton of research here. I will say I found some interesting things about like numbers and that this was the most watched premiere on the CW. Oh, wow. That was impressive. And then the audience sort of fell off a little bit. People were speculating because the teen romance stuff was too heavy. 
And then it drew more viewers back as that part of the show was reduced, but it has a 92% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which I thought was really good. I, you know, you were talking about your husband watching, trying to get your husband to watch if you do a rewatch. And I feel like my, like also my husband, if he can get past the first, the first few, you know, episodes, or maybe even the first season, if you can get through the first season, I mean, I think season two and season three are phenomenal. And so I, I think that he would really like them too. So, yeah. Uh, so I might, maybe we can get them both on board. <laughs> I would love that. Well, and I just think the way the show, I don't want to call it a reinvention, but they make it feel new. Mm-hmm. So they're able to do that while staying consistent with their original vision and this interesting premise. So it's actually based on Cass Morgan's series. And I've only read the first of those books. I read it after I had watched the show up to that point. And I like the show much better than the book. I don't know if I would have felt differently if I'd read the book first, but if anybody's interested, it is based on a YA series. I did want to say the reason I started watching it was actually because of Stephen King, who is one of my favorite authors, and I follow him on Twitter. And he had been tweeting about how great the 100 is. I think this was during season two. And he was just talking about the interesting moral questions it raises. And Stephen King's recommendations for me are typically really good. Usually they're for books, but I trust his taste. And so when I saw that, I was like, oh, I should give it a try. And so I was, as I was doing research, I found this interesting Twitter kind of debate between Stephen King and William Shatner. Oh, that's a pairing. I know. Isn't that fascinating? (laughs) Yeah. Shatner got some heat later for some things he said about an LGBTQ issue in the show that if you're interested, you should certainly go research, but it would be incredibly spoilery at this point. But anyway, so Stephen King said the sad but true mantra that's repeated over and over in the 100, there are no good guys. And Shatner's response depends upon one's perspective. And sometimes you got to be bad to be good. And then they kind of go on, which I thought was really interesting. That's crazy. Yeah. And I do think it can sustain a much longer and probably more nuanced debate than the one that they had. But I did think it was interesting. I think that is what is unique about this show, especially, especially when it is the CW, which is a a network that is, you know, largely for young adults, but mm-hmm. not all, but I mean, I would argue that this show is not, I yeah, would, I would say it would be good for anyone. And I mean, I, I also think that possibly not too young because mm-hmm. I mean, it is fairly violent. I mean, it depends on the maturity level of the, young person but I mean it is fairly violent I mean there is some sex later mm-hmm. in the series and you know just I mean to me the violence is pretty yeah. graphic for a, a, for a CW show especially yeah and it's dark I mean yeah, it, it really is really dark. dark I mean and I mean and I think what for me happens throughout the show is I mean you get attached to characters and mm-hmm. then then they're gone in that is really difficult. I mean, so there yeah, were, I'm thinking one, about one death. Me too. Like there's, and I mean, and they're also not like quick. I mean, Mm-mm. some of them are really drawn out. So, I mean, because you got to think they got to, they have to stay true to the situation these kids are in on the ground and they have nothing. Mm-hmm. And if they would find some, someone on the ground or anything, I mean, like they, there, there has been a nuclear, 
Holocaust, basically, or right. nuclear, you know, ap apocalypse. So, I mean, it is not going to be good time. So you, they have to stay true to that. So that means that some of the stuff is pretty horrific. Yeah. I mean, I have to say there's one, my son would call it a jump scare when they are on the ground hiking and they're talking about there are no animals. And then they happen upon this meadow and there's oh my a beautiful gosh. deer and they're all like, oh, and <laughs> the deer turns sideways and you see that it has like two heads <laughs> with exposed bones. Anyway, I think that moment, if, if, if I were teaching this, I would say analyze that as a symbol <laughs> of the world that they have found. But yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we are going to end. And so today's topic, Sarah, is one character from the 100 to survive a nuclear holocaust with. Oh, mine is hands down. <laughs> this is not even hard for me. It would be Bellamy because for I'm a sucker for someone with the charisma. And also, I guess too, because I know the, traje the trajectory of his character. He is, I, I think that, I mean, even in this episode, he shows what a leader he is mm -hmm. and how he is willing to take control. And I think that like in an apocalypse, you need to need someone, which would probably not be me. So I feel like he has a skill set that I do not bring to the table. So that would be mine. Bellamy. Good one. I, I had a hard time. So I, I thought about Clark because mm -hmm. I think she shows leadership skills from the beginning and is very focused on practicalities, which I enjoy. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go with Monty. Oh I'm yeah. Really? I think you see from the beginning that Monty is smart, that he has a lot of knowledge. His family is in charge of growing the food on the ark. And he is able to apply that knowledge to their new setting. And then again, because of the arc that we see his character take over the course of the series, there are other things that come forward that make me find him to be a very appealing character. Yes. I, I like Monty too. He's really yeah. good. There and are a then, lot of great characters. Oh my gosh. I mean, I, that is the other thing about this is there are a lot of characters who are huge players. I mean, I think a lot of it centers around Clark, but I would not, but I would say that there is equal billing giving to a lot of different yeah. characters. And I think as the series goes on, Clark is one of the less compelling characters mm -hmm. as we get go through. And so I, yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I think that it's a really strong cast of young actors. I agree. Play. I mean, I just think it's really well acted. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you were talking about Kane, I love Henry Ian Cusack. I'm a Ugh. huge fan of Lost, which actually I saw comparisons between this pilot and the pilot of Lost, which I think is the best pilot I've ever seen on a TV show, the Lost pilot. But anyway, and he was one of my favorite actors on that show. And then to see him come here and what he does with the character of Kane is the polar opposite of the character he plays in Lost. I just think a lot of these actors are so capable of playing a multitude of roles. And so it's nice to see them here. I do have one little fun fact that I oh, will yeah. give. It's not, it's not too exciting, but I, so when I first watched this Jasper, he's the character who wears his goggles, wears the goggles all the time. I was like, I know this guy. Where have I seen him before? And I could not figure it out. And then I was watching Diary of a Wimpy Kid, The Long Haul, with uh -huh. my my son and daughter. And he is Roderick. Not he, he not in that one. He is Roderick in the first one. So I was watching oh. I was watching Diary of a Wimpy Kid that one. And I was like, that's not the same Roderick. So that's what kind of 
Oh, that's, that, that's funny. But he was Roderick. He was the lead singer of Loaded Diaper. Do you remember that? <laughs> I do from the books. I've not seen the other movies. I've only seen The Long Haul. Okay. So like The Long Haul was what prompted me. Uh-huh. And then I was like, that's who he is because we watched The Long Haul and then we did a whole marathon of those because the kids like them and they're funny and yeah. I enjoyed watching them. So he is the one in the the first one. And I can't remember if Long Haul is third or well, anyway, regardless, he is the, he is Roderick and Diamond oh, the Kid, the first one. So that's awesome. And the lead singer of Loaded Diaper. So, so he's got some range. That's right. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, is there anything else you want to bring up that we have not covered about this episode of the 100? Um, looking through my notes here. Oh, the one thing I did, the one thing that I wrote that I wanted to, you know how I always like to talk about music. If you guys watch our Instagram live, when they are walking out and they, they play Imagine Dragons Radioactive, I was like, this is so dramatic and I love it. <laughs> it was perfect. Yes, I, that is the one song. Maybe there were others that I should have written down. That's the one I wrote down to you. My kids love Imagine Dragons also, so I'm always attuned those moments but well and their songs are just they're dramatic in and of themselves and then that with them like walking out and like kind of dispersing in the new ground and then playing that it was i was like wow this is so this is magical it was awesome (laughs) yeah that's great that's really that's all i have all right me too well thank you everyone for joining us and we are going to be back soon with the pilot of riverdale so We hope you listen to that one as well. I haven't watched that for a long time either. So I'll be interested to see what I think of that the second time around. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion on the 100. And again, hit us up on social media to talk about it. We love to talk about book to screen adaptations. Now we are going to end our episode the way we end every episode with our Give Me One. And today our Give Me One is our favorite ride at an amusement park. Jen, what is your favorite ride? I do love amusement parks. I think my favorite, I love wooden roller coasters. I like roller coasters in general. I've gotten less brave since I have become a mother and have gotten older, but I still love wooden roller coasters. I love the anticipation of climbing the hill and feeling every click, 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 click. And it's always slower. So it takes longer to get to the top and then you feel every bump. I just love it. So wooden roller coasters are my favorite. I like roller coasters. Ashley, how about you? I thought it was funny you chose that, Jen, because I don't love the wooden ones very much. They're a little jerky. They so are. I find, yeah. So I find that I don't like that as much, but I love all things fast and furious. And I, <laughs> I absolutely love roller coasters. I thought I might have kind of grown out of it. And then we all went to, <laughs> to Universal in spring of 2020, right before the shutdown. And I was like, nope, I haven't grown out of this at all. <laughs> I absolutely love it. I could do it over and over and over again all day. But I do think something that was new to me, because I haven't been to amusement parks in quite a while, is the kind of rides that integrate the virtual reality components with the movement. And that is definitely my favorite. And I think the last time I had seen those, you didn't get the kind of 
speed or shocking movement that I love in a roller coaster with the virtual reality part. And now they totally have that, which I'm sure mm -hmm. a lot of people listening are like, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but that that combination really works for me. So that was really cool. Like at Harry Potter World, there were ones that it was, you know, you were so immersed, but also it had really shocking or fast movements. And I loved that. So that kind of is, is my favorite now. So what about you, Sarah? What's your favorite? Well, I have to say, I had never been to an amusement park like Universal Studios and because I've never been to Disney. And uh, so I hadn't been to these gigantic rides like that. And I love the Harry Potter experience, the whole Harry Potter world and the rides and the integration, like you said, of the, the whole visual experience. And then also the ride that was amazing. But I, for my favorite ride, one of my favorite rides, I'm going to go old school. So my favorite ride is the the big swings that they that you can get really get on i'm mean, not just at amusement parks but oftentimes like boardwalks will have them but i just love that feeling of being up in the air and swinging swings were always my favorite at the playground so i love that i don't have to do any work and i can just swing and look out <laughs> over <laughs> everything so that's mine it's kind of old school but i like it yeah those are fun Okay, well, thank you for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and definitely interact with us on social media all about 100, the 100 and book to screen adaptations. Do you have comments or opinions about what you heard today? We'd love to hear them. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at UnabridgedPod or on the web at UnabridgedPod.com for a list of ways to support us. We'd like to thank Jared Featherstone, who composed our theme music, Strings of Light, and Katie Amy of Amy Photography, our podcast photographer. Thanks for listening to Unabridged.